The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association for Anatomy. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious. Today's episode, Is Your Heart Pumping Too Hard?, I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, an associate professor in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hi, listeners. On today's episode, we'll be talking about pulmonary hypertension. I have a great interdisciplinary team to discuss this topic. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourselves? Thanks, Michelle. I'm Associate Professor Barb Kemp-Harper, and I'm a pharmacologist, and I'm based at Monash University. I'm a medical researcher and I have a lot of interest in heart and lung diseases and in particular pulmonary hypertension. We've got a lot of cutting-edge research in that area. My name is Dr Daniel Chin. I'm a clinician with an interest in teaching anatomy and also in radiology. G'day there, my name is Chris and I am an interested community member. Back in episode 9 we talked about hypertension, but now we've added this thing called pulmonary. What is that referring to? You would have heard about people having high blood pressure and they often go to their GP and they'll have their blood pressure taken. And that's when they place a cuff around the arm and they're looking at blood flow through the arteries or the tubes in our arm. And that's really common high blood pressure, but you probably haven't heard that people actually can have high blood pressure in their lungs. When we refer to blood pressure to the lungs, we're referring to blood flow from the heart to the lungs, also referred to as the pulmonary circuit or the travel pathway that it takes from the right side of the heart over to the lungs for oxygenation. We also have what's called a systemic circuit, which we also heard about when we referred to the systemic blood pressure, that blood pressure cuff. So that's the blood flow from the heart to the rest of the body, which is occurring from the left side of the heart. So if we take a step back and we think about blood flow through the heart, we're carrying deoxygenated blood from all our organs and tissues into the right atrium on that right side of the heart. It's a thinner walled area that sort of holds and stores blood for at least a heartbeat. It then travels through a one-way valve to prevent backflow, known as the tricuspid valve, into the right ventricle. This ventricle is thicker walled than the atrium because it's going to pump that blood into the lungs. It does this by way of the pulmonary trunk. This pulmonary trunk leaves that right ventricle and divides into a right and left pulmonary artery. So this is a scenario where we're referring to an artery that's carrying low oxygenated blood. After a series of events that we've described in earlier podcasts related to vascularization through the alveolar blood gas exchange, the blood then is oxygenated and comes back into the left side of the heart. Now we're going to start in the left atrium, go through the bicuspid valve into the left ventricle, and then out the aorta. When we're thinking about this on a whole system-wide basis, the right side of the heart is going to be a lower pressure system because all the blood is going from the body into the lungs, so we don't want it too high pressure. The left side of the heart, however, is pumping to the entire body, so from the head down to the feet. So we're going to think of the left-sided heart under normal circumstances as more of the higher pressure system. Indeed, the right side of the heart 
and the left side of the heart, they actually pump out the same amount of blood. But the left side of the heart pumps the blood all around the body and the right side of the heart pumps it just to the lung. The lung is located in a really close proximity to the right side of the heart. So the right side of the heart doesn't have to pump that blood very far. And so that's why it's low pressure. It doesn't have a great resistance that it has to pump against. Whereas the left side of the heart has to pump that blood a really large distance. So it's a much greater resistance. And in fact, that left side of the heart has thicker muscle. It's got more work to do than the right side of the heart. The pulmonary artery is actually quite unique. Unlike other arteries in our body, it actually carries blood that has very low content of oxygen, whereas our arteries in the rest of the body carry blood that contains a large amount of oxygen. And because this pulmonary artery only has to carry blood from the right side of the heart to the lung, a really short distance, it actually doesn't need to be very thick wall. It has a very thin wall and it can be expanded very easily. And this is important because it has to actually accommodate a really large volume of blood that's coming from the right side of the heart all the way to the lungs. This means that our pressure is quite low then in the lungs. It's only about 15 millimetres of mercury, whereas in the rest of the body, our pressure in the, our arteries is more like 100 millimetres of mercury. So that's really seven times higher. When we compare the wall thickness, specifically the muscular thickness of that pulmonary trunk to the aorta, which is carrying that large volume of blood, so again, the same volume of blood, but it has to pump it a much further distance, it's going to have a larger muscular wall allowing it to pump that long distance. If the pressure to the lungs is normally low, what is it that causes it to go high to create this hypertension? There's actually quite a few factors that can cause the pressure within our lungs to increase. For example, if there's a lack of oxygen, that can cause an increase in pressure. If there's damage to our pulmonary blood vessels, it can cause an increase in pressure. And as the pressure goes up in our lungs or in our pulmonary vessels, our heart has to respond to that. Our right side of the heart now is pumping against a higher pressure. And so the heart muscle starts to try and strengthen and increase in size against that pressure, just like when we exercise. The heart can actually do this for quite a while, but over time it'll actually get tired and fatigue and the heart muscle itself can become damaged. And then the right heart starts to fail, and that's when we have really dire consequences for our patients. This is referred to as muscular or cardiac hypertrophy, so increase in cardiac muscle tissue. What we're describing here is almost like a hose. So the pulmonary trunk or pulmonary artery is carrying the low oxygen blood from the right side of the heart to the pulmonary circuit is kinked. There's a barrier, and this is increasing pressure meaning the flow of fluid, in this case blood, is increasing and increasing. The heart tries to compensate for this kink by increasing its own strength and power and thus increases the muscular layer through hypertrophy. I think I recall reading that exercise can change the shape of the heart as well. What's the difference in that case versus pulmonary hypertension? What our heart can do is it can actually enlarge in response to growth of our body and also to exercise. And in this case, it's actually the left side of the heart that increases in size, but it's actually a good thing. So during exercise, the heart actually has to pump more oxygen around the body because we obviously have a greater demand. And so it's working harder to do that. And just like when we exercise our muscles in our legs, they grow in size when we continually exercise. So the heart's muscle will grow in size because of all this extra work it has to do. But this is actually fine because we're fit and healthy and we have a good blood supply to our heart muscle itself and it's not damaged. So this is physiological hypertrophy. However, in pulmonary hypertension, we get something called pathological hypertrophy. 
This is when the heart muscle increases in size, but it's not such a good thing. So yes, it's increasing in size because it's pumping against a greater pressure that we're seeing in the lung. However, there's lots of other toxic molecules that are released at the same time, and they're actually causing some damage to the heart muscle. So it's increased in size, but it's also damaged, so it's not pumping as effectively. So in the case of exercise-induced hypertrophy of the heart, it's a more efficient heart muscle. It can function better. It can pump blood better. And again, it's focused on the left side of the heart. But in the case of pulmonary hypertension, we have an increase in heart size, but it's less efficient, less functional, because there's also simultaneous damage, and we're having the greater effect on the right side of the heart, at least initially. Something else to add or to keep in mind is that the high blood pressure or the high resistance that the heart has to pump against during exercise is is only an intermittent stress on the heart. It's only something that you might do for half an hour or an hour while you're going for your jog or your swim. And your heart has time to rest in between these sessions, times when there's not that high pressure that it's pumping against. Whereas with pulmonary hypertension, with these increased pressures in the right side of the heart and in the pulmonary arteries, that's maintained 24-7 and the heart doesn't have that time to rest and recover. And that's part of what causes the damage. How would somebody know if they have pulmonary hypertension? Well, with measurement of your normal blood pressure and checking about hypertension, you might know that your doctor will put a cuff around your arm and pump up the pressure in that and will measure that against the level of mercury and that's how you'll get your usual numbers of 130 over 80 or something like that. But we can't do that with our pulmonary arteries and our pulmonary trunk. There's no blood pressure cuff we can put around that part of our body. So we need another way to measure that. The gold standard in order to actually obtain that measurement is actually quite an invasive assessment. We would put a detection device into the pulmonary circulation to be able to measure what the pressure there is and to be able to see whether that's in a normal range or whether that's actually elevated. How do we get such a device or instrument into the body? If we think about putting your hands on your heart, there's actually quite a large bony structure known as our thoracic cage that's covering most of the structures that we're talking about here, specifically the pulmonary trunk. So your choices are either to go through the anterior chest wall or front chest wall, which would be unreasonable given that you're just doing an evaluation or a test. So we take sort of a highway pathway and we use the systemic circulation to travel all the way back to the heart because that's the portion that we're trying to measure, those pulmonary trunks. And so we need a pathway that goes from the systemic circulation that's accessible, maybe through our lower limb or femoral vein, And we'll follow that through the iliacs and then eventually back to what's referred to as the inferior vena cava, which takes you directly into the right atrium, right side of the heart, and into the right ventricle, and then into the pulmonary trunk and arteries. And that's the spot where we measure the pressures to be able to tell whether you've got pulmonary hypertension or not. And the number that we use as the cutoff for that is more than or equal to 25 millimetres of mercury. Previously, we discussed that our normal pulmonary pressure is about 15 millimetres of mercury. So 25 and above, we're starting to get high. Given that's a very invasive way to confirm pulmonary hypertension, what other signs or symptoms would a clinician look for as a precursor to this test? Well, the presentation of a patient with pulmonary hypertension is often very nonspecific and the presentation can come quite insidiously. So the diagnosis can be missed for quite some time, in fact, and it is thought that up to even 20% of people who are diagnosed with this condition have had it for up to two years but just didn't know that they had it. And that's because the main symptoms that people will get is shortness of breath on exertion or when exercising, and fatigue. And this is a real challenge for clinicians because there are a whole lot of conditions that can actually cause one or both of these symptoms in isolation or in combination. And that's from things like other lung diseases, other heart diseases, or even things like having an underactive thyroid. 
or even mental health conditions such as depression. It can make you feel fatigued. So it makes it quite difficult. People will often only recognise that they've got something seriously wrong by the time that the right side of the heart, which we spoke about in the earlier part of this podcast, has adapted as much as it can and grown as strong as it can to try and deal with this blood pressure, that eventually it, it can't adapt any further and it, it does something to what we call decompensating, which is where it sort of is unable to adapt any further and that's when that chamber of the heart starts to fail. Then we start to see some signs and symptoms of that. So is this sort of like when you're at the gym and you're lifting really heavy weights and you reach a point where you just can't lift the weight anymore because your muscle is so incredibly spent? The problem is it's not just the fact that your muscle's tired, it's actually damaged as well. And you can have things like scarring and fibrosis and stiffening of that muscle. It just can't contract as well anymore. So yes, it's tired, but it's also damaged and not functioning. Given these symptoms are, in a sense, nonspecific, are there any other ones you look for potentially? Yes, there are. And often pulmonary hypertension actually occurs as a secondary event or a consequence of another disease process which is going on, such as other lung diseases, other heart diseases, or quite a few other conditions in the body. And so often it will be about diagnosing not only the pulmonary hypertension, but also the other underlying disease process. So there may well be, for instance, in someone who's got lung disease, they may have many other features or symptoms of lung disease, such as other shortness of breath, different types of cough, which will lead a clinician to be able to make a diagnosis of one of those conditions and then also subsequently being able to diagnose their pulmonary hypertension as well. I think I've read that they actually have a standard test called a six-minute walks test where they look to see the distance a patient could walk over six minutes and that's actually really severely compromised in those patients who've got pulmonary hypertension versus someone who doesn't. Yes, there's a whole raft of tests that we can actually do to assess patients with any of these conditions of the heart and of the lungs to assess not only for pulmonary hypertension, but also for the other conditions which can precipitate the pulmonary hypertension as well. And so that might be things like having a chest x-ray, having an ultrasound of the heart to look at its function and of the pressures in the heart and of the structure of the heart as well. And that's called an echocardiogram and other things like an ECG or an electrocardiogram. It's important to remember that while the issue might be pulmonary hypertension, so blood pressure through that pulmonary artery, one of the ways that we can analyze and evaluate this is actually looking at the heart function. That ties in very nicely to the fact that the main set of symptoms that people will get when they do become symptomatic with pulmonary hypertension are those consequences of the fact that the right ventricle is not performing as well anymore when it has started to decompensate or to be unable to keep up with the high blood pressure in the pulmonary circulation. And these features are essentially due to a backup or a backlog of blood which is unable to be pumped out from that chamber or an increase in the pressures and in the volume of blood in the other parts of the circulation and in the veins in the body, which are returning blood to the heart and to the right side of the circulation. And so those things that we might see in a clinical assessment of a patient might be to see some distension in the veins of the neck with that increased venous pressure, as well as things like having peripheral edema or swelling of the legs and of the ankles due to those increased pressures. And Interestingly, also some congestion around the liver, which can cause increased size of the liver or in some situations damage to the liver and scarring and consequences of that as well. So if we go back to our analogy of the hose, essentially we've created a kink in the hose line out to the lungs, and this is causing backup throughout the body that we're seeing downstream. So the hose is enlarging or expanding or losing integrity in the more distal or further away locations as this kink backs up and the pressure increases. That ties in really well to actually what goes wrong in our pulmonary blood vessels in pulmonary hypertension. Our blood vessels are lined with a single layer of cells called endothelial cells, and these are really protective. So they release some amazing substances that help to dilate or open up our blood vessels. 
One of them is a, a gas called nitric oxide, and there's also something else called prostacyclin. And the problem is when we have pulmonary hypertension, we have damage to those endothelial cells and we actually have a decrease in the amount of those protective substances. So now our blood vessels start to constrict or narrow because of the loss of all these vasodilators there. And when they start to constrict and narrow, they also start to remodel as well. They become more muscular. So remember I said before those pulmonary arteries are really thin-walled? Now they become more like an artery we'd see in the rest of our body. They become really thickened. And when they become thickened, it means the lumen is narrowed. And so there's even more resistance to blood flow. And the lumen is the space where the blood's traveling through. So the size of the hose is actually changing. Absolutely. All this damage is going to cause what we call remodeling to our pulmonary vasculature. And that's going to exacerbate or elevate our pressure even further, which is a big problem. So it seems that many of the signs and symptoms somebody would present with related to pulmonary hypertension are both related to the initial issue of the kink in the hose, but also the downstream effects of this entire pathway. And it's important to remember that both the systemic and pulmonary circuit are connected through that heart. From what I can understand of pulmonary hypertension, it sounds very complicated. What are the treatment options available for someone with pulmonary hypertension? So our current treatments really very much are aimed at the high pressure in the lungs, in the pulmonary blood vessels, and trying to lower that pressure. You might remember that I talked about how there's damage to those blood vessels and we lose those protective molecules, such as the nitric oxide. So what we try and do from a clinical perspective is actually give those patients back those protective substances in the form of drugs and medications. Endothelial cells, from a histological perspective, actually help blood flow and prevent clotting. Some of these treatment options, one of the effects of them is actually to decrease blood clots and increase that blood flow by protecting that endothelial layer. Believe it or not, one of our current treatments for patients with pulmonary hypertension is Viagra. Now that seems a little strange when you first think about it, but in actual fact, Viagra also helps blood vessels open up and improves blood flow. And the way it does it is it actually enhances the way that nitric oxide signals. So nitric oxide comes along and it acts on the smooth muscle in the blood vessel and it causes that muscle to relax and dilate. So we essentially have two choices. We can either give nitric oxide directly or we can affect the pathway that nitric oxide uses by using Viagra. Yes, and interestingly, that mechanism of action is the same both in the therapeutic use in treatment of erectile dysfunction in terms of causing vasodilatation of the corpora cavernosa in the penis as well as in the pulmonary vasculature in the lungs. It's important to remember that when we're talking about erection, it is based on vasodilation. So if we enhance vasodilation in the penis, we're going to enhance erection. And if we enhance vasodilation in the pulmonary artery, we're going to enhance blood flow to the pulmonary circuit. But these drugs, do they only work at these targeted locations or is this taking place all throughout the body at the same time? That's something we really have to think about because the drugs will work all over the body. So we don't want to necessarily drop people's systemic blood pressure. We only want to lower their blood pressure in the lungs. So how do we do that? Well, we could inhale some of these medications. That's one approach. Some of them actually we can't administer in that way. Others of these medications need to be given through a drip, but that's obviously very restrictive in terms of people being able to use these medications on a day-to-day basis. And as you said, we can't use other medications which we'd use for systemic hypertension or elevated blood pressure in other areas. So we do have a different arsenal that we have to use in treatment of pulmonary hypertension as compared to other types of blood pressure. 
Actually, one way around it is the molecule that Viagra targets, which is known as phosphodiesterase 5, is actually expressed at higher levels in the lung than elsewhere in the body. So that actually allows us to target that medication more so to the lungs than to elsewhere. Given the target audience for Viagra tends to be a certain age group, is it possible that some of these patients are inadvertently treating their pulmonary hypertension at the same time as erectile dysfunction? I think that ties very nicely into the epidemiology of pulmonary hypertension. And for people who have essentially pulmonary hypertension somewhat in isolation of another condition, they're often quite a lot younger than some of the other patients who have it as a secondary complication of another condition, such as heart disease or lung disease. So to answer the question, potentially yes, because many patients who do have pulmonary hypertension as a secondary consequence of another condition will be in an older age bracket above the age of 65. So I guess that is a possibility. Are these treatment options merely good for the symptoms or do they completely cure you from the disease? Unfortunately, the treatments don't cure you of the disease. They will help to lower the pressure in the lungs, but it actually doesn't return the pressure back to normal. So we really need some new avenues to treat this disease more effectively. And this is actually some of the work we're doing in our laboratory at the moment. We recognise that not only do we want to lower pressure, but we also want to look at these blood vessels that have changed in their structure with the disease. So you may recall I talked about how they become thicker, more muscular, and that will reduce blood flow through them and all contribute to the increased pressure. So we've actually found that immune cells come flooding into these pulmonary blood vessels in patients with pulmonary hypertension, and they release lots of toxic molecules that contribute to the damage. So our work is actually looking at ways to dampen down that immune response. And we think if we can do that in combination with our drugs that can dilate and open up the blood vessels, we'll be able to treat the condition more effectively. So this ties back to a podcast we had earlier about inflammation. Is it bad or is it good? And so in this case, we're talking about a severe inflammation due to this pulmonary hypertension that actually is bad. And it's causing such significant damage that you have downstream effects. So one potential avenue for targeting in drugs is to reduce the actual inflammation pathway. In treating pulmonary hypertension, it's also important to remember that because some groups of the disease are because of other heart disease and of other lung diseases, that often treating these other conditions as well will be part of the treatment plan for patients with this condition as well and will often help out the pulmonary hypertension too. It sounds like from these discussions that most of the drugs only target the downstream effects of pulmonary hypertension. But potentially with research and understanding the system better, we may actually be able to repair the underlying cause of pulmonary hypertension, which is the damage to the blood vessels and the damage to the heart. Is that correct? That's correct. When patients present with pulmonary hypertension, it's often quite late in the disease. So we actually already know that they've had changes to their pulmonary blood vessels and to their heart at this point. So we want new treatments that are actually going to try and help stop that from getting any worse and also reversing that damage. Further to that, our current treatments are predominantly targeted at symptomatic improvement and quality of life improvement in patients, but the amount that we've been able to improve the prognosis of this condition has been quite limited so far. There are other options in addition to medical treatments as well, and for certain subtypes of pulmonary hypertension, which might be due to having increased clotting within the lungs themselves, there is an option as well of performing a particular type of surgery as well to actually remove some of the damaged lining cells, that damaged endothelium, and that is remodelled and then by giving patients blood thinner treatment, that can then help to be an effective treatment for their pulmonary hypertension, as well as stopping the formation of further clots, which then effectively stops the disease from occurring again. 
In this case of pulmonary hypertension, instead of a kink, we're referring to an internal blockage. So instead of only water going through the pipes, maybe some debris gets caught in there. So the surgery would allow a surgeon to go in, remove that debris, and reopen up that vessel. It's also important to remember that all surgery is invasive and has risks, and so not all patients will be appropriate to have this treatment. And if medical treatment's appropriate, that's often preferable if possible. In actual fact, Daniel, I've read that an alternative to the surgery, patients can undergo balloon angioplasty, in which a small balloon is placed in the pulmonary artery, and that balloon just helps to break up the sort of scarring and fibrous tissue that's blocking the inside of the blood vessel. But we need to note that this is quite a recent technique, and the long-term follow-up on these patients is needed to see how they're progressing. Surgical interventions to treat this disease will always be complex. The location of the lungs, the depth within the thoracic cavity, make the access really limited. So even when we take the less invasive approach, maybe through the balloon angioplasty, so using the same pathway we did to look at the pressure in this system, we're still pretty invasive. We have to go through a long pathway and there's a risk to a large set of vessels. Further complicating this is many patients present far into the disease progression. And it's clear that more research is really needed to identify treatments that target the underlying disease as well as help repair the damage that occurs as a byproduct of this disease. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank my interdisciplinary team for an interesting discussion on a complicated topic of pulmonary hypertension. And always remember that relationships matter, at least the anatomical ones. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomists and use the hashtag AnatQ.